Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. Hello and welcome to the show, Cybersecurity Where You Are. I'm Sean Atkinson, CISO here at the Center for Internet Security, joined by the host with the most, the Hall of Famer, Tony Sager. Tony, how are you, sir? Great, thanks, Sean, and great to join you for this uh, kind of a different sort of an episode for us. It is. It's one we, uh, it's really a format we've not done before, but we wanted to do and bring to the audience our think back on AI. So we've done a few episodes. Um, I've done a, a kind of a, a single episode. Now, this is episode 48. Well, we'll touch on this one, but there was a, an episode, Tony, episode 49, that we really went in and we were really breaking down what AI meant, what we were seeing at the time in the uh, in the market and the uh, the narrative, as it were. And then I also had a conversation with uh, Dr. Shikarian uh, of Arizona State, which uh, obviously his expertise was phenomenal in that space. But we really started, and, and Tony, I'd laid it out in episode 48, we're just covering very lightly some of the topics that we were seeing. I wanted to just talk about the fact that, uh, you know, I think we're in the AI era, as it were, and that we've moved now into a space where if it's not AI enabled, it's not anything, if you know what I mean. And again, that's been a, a little uh, uh, controversial, potentially. But in the security space, if it's not got AI, ML, you're, you're not marketing the right things, right? So that was a, a, an element to kind of set the tone for episode 49. But with 48, you know, we just covered uh, chat GTP. You know, I mentioned elements of malware development that could be used by this. There's a good uh, use case, as it were, for AI, specifically the large language models. And then, you know, there's ultimately the ways it can be misused. Um, But I want to get your thoughts, Tony, on what you saw through the three episodes and themes um, that you see, I think, resonate still today. You know, I, I reviewed the episodes in preparation for for this episode, uh, and uh, you know, everything still rings true. I, I think we're still on the same path. But I want to get your thoughts. Sure. Yeah, I think yeah, I went back to listen also, and uh, you know, <laughs> at some risk, right, of having said something silly before and <laughs> now catching ourselves. <laughs> but I think we we talked a lot about the potential applications to cybersecurity, both both in terms of the, the viewpoint of the defender as well as the attacker. And uh, I was struck by the, uh, let's just focus on the, the viewpoint of the defender. And there were a couple of things there. Uh, I, I use this phrase to play off of something you said, but you know, never underestimate the power of a, a cheap and easy or cheap and free or something like that. And you, you said it more politely. This is, you know, the, the way this has rolled out in contrast to, in the 80s, I was looking at expert systems and things like that for, um, you know, for specific security applications. But in contrast, this this sort of accessibility of the technology, you know, it's it's a kind of appearance quickly as something that anyone could get access to, and experiment with, and this notion of it, that helps create new ideas, that generates interest, that draws investment, 
And that, we're, I think we're just starting to see the beginning of that wave. And we talked a fair amount about that, right? And everyone in the business of technology or information management or whatever is experimenting. And so it's very exciting to see the kinds of things that could be done. Again, thinking about it from the cyber defender's viewpoint, uh, we talked about kind of the work that, that you do or that our IT folks do or the uh, what I call the grunt work of cybersecurity. Many pieces of data from many sensors, many complicated constraints, and just, you know, is there a possibility of here of getting humans, you know, getting humans away from the grunt work and focused on the things that humans can do is a really big opportunity for us. So, you know, like a lot of folks at CIS, I, I know there are teams looking at potential applications and there are things that seem to fit pretty well and that we're starting to get some ideas and experimentation with, like cross-mapping between security frameworks and things along those lines that we spend a lot of time and energy and you would like to bring more consistency to. You would like to get the kind of just the data gathering and correlation. You'd like to take care of that. And I think, you know, I think we're seeing some interesting results and exciting things there that we'll, we'll continue on. Uh, the other, you know, I wanted to mention one that you brought up in the in that uh, episode forty nine when you talked about uh, you referenced a uh, conversation with your daughter. I don't know if you remember that one or not. Uh, that you were able to use the tools to help uh, generate different levels of abstraction of understanding, right? Trying to meet a, a young person, kind of where they were, and you could do that sort of naturally and iteratively using you know, the tools that are available now, just anywhere. And, you know, that, that triggered a thought as I thought about it, because I, oh, you know, what, as you know, I'm doing a fair amount now with the company around thought leadership. You know, how do we uh, 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 impact the way people think of the security problem and what the solution space, the opportunities might be? And, you know, one of the things we've discussed at CIS is that while we are well known and I think well respected in sort of the technical part of the cybersecurity business. Outside of that, we are not very well known. And yet, if we want to have large-scale influence, we have to influence the thinking of people that don't know us at a technical level. They don't trust us, right? Don't have that track record with us. And by the way, those people tend to speak a different language, whether it's the, the, the legal world, the regulatory world, public policy, uh, uh, top-level business leadership, right? This is a classic problem across our industry is, you know, even when you have great technical ideas, if you can't convey them at different levels of abstraction targeted to different audiences, again, who speak, uh, you know, have a kind of different language, but also a different core understanding or insight into the problem and the possible solutions, then you, then you can't scale, right? You can't make that kind of progress that we would like. So you were thinking of it in, in a, and then, in a really sort of individual way, which I thought was, yes. and that really triggered me to think, oh, we actually have that problem at a corporate level also. And so is there something there that we could pursue that would help us think about that, right? That is, because for many of us who grew up in technology, uh, you know, speaking English is not our first language. Right? We, we think about these <laughs> yes. things in a, in a soup of acronyms and concepts that don't necessarily make sense. Or we, we give the world a term, a tag term to look at to convey the idea, but it may not help. But the, I think the, the current one is zero trust. You, you know, we might, you certainly have a technical understanding and, you know, how do I translate that the, the concepts into reality? But, you know, when you say that to a senior business leader, you're not getting that same understanding, right? 
they're looking for, well, what does that mean to me? Does that mean I get to invest less? Hooray. And you're going, no, it means you invest more <laughs> you know, to get better understanding of a more complicated, you know, dynamically changing world. And so, so we're, so we, it's hard to hit the right kind of language, right? To, to, how do I express these, these concepts? So anyway, that's, that's what struck me when I look back at that episode. Oh, Sean, Sean really triggered me to, uh, to think about a, that, that particular aspect of defense. Yeah. No, I, I think it's fantastic because it's these, um, and I think we all do it in some respects, Tony. There's layers of abstraction, right, that we place on respective concepts. So even myself learning zero trust have abstracted elements of it so that I can understand it and interpret what those principles are. Now, me trying to translate my interpretation to somebody else, specifically a senior leader, say, in a financial space that may not even want to know the technical issues, right? Because I think there's also that, uh, you know, the communication element, I want to receive the information and I may be giving it to some people and they may be like, this is nothing to do. I, I've, you know, I, I'm a, you've abstracted me out of this conversation. It's more about you talking to, you know, necessarily proselytize your approach. Great, wonderful. You, you've, you've achieved that goal, but you've not communicated anything. And so I think it gets us into a space and, and the reason why I used the, uh, you know, the uh, chat GTP, you know, which we, I think we're around the seven minute mark on the 49, um, was talking about um, the ability for the large language model to create those abstractions at certain levels. And so I, you know, just used an age definer, as it were, to allow it to be able to interpret the information and, and be able to then convey it in a way that uh, told a story. And I think in the telling of it is quite interesting as well, either, you know, and one of the other things I, I also will just pick up on as well, Tony, is the interpretations that we create for technology elements as well. So, you know, I'm not going to uh, necessarily the RFCs to understand uh, communication protocols in order to understand it, right? You know, I'm using an abstraction of that so I'm using an abstraction of an abstraction of, a, of an abstraction to understand. And I may have got it wrong in terms of my understanding, but then the conveyance of that information then permeates other elements as well. And so it gets into this, uh, you know, this cycle of um, hallucination in some case. And, you know, that comes up a lot in the AI space. But in a lot of cases, the way you conceptualize is you could also yourself hallucinate under underlying principles, and uh, you know it does then differentiate and affect the the way you communicate and the way you can convey, because again, you know a principle understanding that's misunderstood, you know, can necessarily permeate uh, certain issues in knowledge transfer. Exactly, and I think you know we talked a fair amount towards the end of that uh, episode forty nine about. Uh, how do we have? How do we create, gain, and convey confidence in the cybersecurity business? Right, and we have traditional ways to think about that. Sort of uh, things like ad adherence to, stand to known behaviors, acceptable behaviors like standards, uh, transparency, independent assessment. Uh, you know, uh, sort of explanatory mechanisms that allow us to generate confidence in the world that we knew, and. And that becomes a really different challenge in this you know, chat GPT, large language model. And that, that came up also in your follow-on episode 56, uh, you know, around, uh, I, I thought there were some interesting com comments in there, right? The, it, the accessibility of the tools 
I mean, it's almost like you're having a conversation. Lends it a certain credence. Well, the tools have been trained, right, to act like that. That is, they, they interact in a way. But as he said that, you know, again, depending what's going on in the question and the context and the model, it, it could be creating fiction or fact. And so what does that mean for our confidence, right? So there's a less transparent thing happening here, right? The, the entire system becomes the algorithm. There's no follow this path and you can say, yes, I agree with the logic and therefore I have confidence in the outcome of that flow. That, that, that's not what these things do. In fact, by design, right, they move us away from having to worry about the details of algorithms. And so how will we then, as practitioners, both create and convey this confidence to the decision makers? Right? So you'll have that challenge right, with the senior leadership of CIS, with our board, with the auditors that come look over your shoulder. And so you'll, you, know, you gave a, a very compelling discussion about um, you know, there is no magic one number or one thing, right? You have to sort of create your own model of confidence that involves measurements of all these different factors. So it's changed the way that you think of your role in crafting and conveying confidence to others, right? Who are dealing with, you know, at a different level in terms of business decision-making. I thought that was, I, I found that very insightful, you know, uh, to hear you walk your way through that. And I think that, you know, to me, that is one of the foundational questions. And now you're seeing, you know, we didn't talk about this much, I think, in these episodes, but the, the role of governments now, right, issuing guidance or standards or, you know, sort of expectations, trying to say, you know, this is the nature of technology, isn't it? I used to say uh, technology and policy, if they were waves, sort of oscillate madly around each other until they eventually converge on what we hope is common sense, right? So you have like, you know, technologies appear. And then the policy world kind of leaps and go, oh, wait a minute, uh, you know, uh, risky implications, you know, all these kinds of things need to regulate. And that often comes across, at least in my experience, uh, you know, heavy handed, uh, maybe not quite as technology aware as you'd like. And they sort of oscillate around, right? And you, have to, you hope you can find some happy medium that uh, encourages innovation, allows us to make use of it while at the same time protecting sort of social interests. But but so a lot, a lot is happening in that. And it's kind of around this idea of confidence, right? How do we... How do we, can we regulate, mandate, put bounds, constraints, uh, conditions on the use of this technology so that it doesn't undermine our social goals? And I think uh, some of that, I think, came out in the follow-on discussion with the, the episode 56. Um, but I think we, we touched on that a little bit. But again, you're kind of in the middle of that as sort of a working guy. At least that's my, you know, my, my impression here. <laughs> No, I appreciate that. Yeah, when we, you know, with Dr. Shikarian, this was around, um, you know, the eight-minute mark, and, and we were talking about this limit, the, the level of trust element, and, and you're absolutely right that there's, when we get into the these flows, and, and, and you know, kind of want to comment on the oscillation, one of the things that I do see is that the innovation, the technology necessarily, is maybe one oscillation ahead of when policy comes in and it's behind the curve as it were in terms of catching up and it's continuously trying to catch up uh, and i think that in some cases especially in this arena you know we we see the velocity of change in ai so you know i'd love to get dr shikarian back uh for us to have a conversation with him in that short amount of time 
there have been monumental changes into the way of interpretability and also the application of AI that have far exceeded some of the EU regulation that have come out, some of the directives from, uh, you know, the White House on AI governance and even NIST risk management framework around AI. And again, some of those are, you know, necessarily frameworks to help guide an approach. But, you know, one of the things that you had mentioned, and, and this is the one that stuck with me, was this consistency element. So this was around the 26-minute mark in our conversation in 49, and that one hit home because it is this uh, an ability to abstract the individual. So I'm an auditor. I'm coming into this organization. I have my own idea, and this is where you know I was going to with the abstraction of the knowledge. So was my understanding of a framework is kind of independent of everybody else's, but I come into your organization and say, no, you've done this wrong. This is the way I interpret it, right? And so that's a completely different element for auditors that are then inconsistent in some cases. And again, I'm not, you know, I love our auditors. I love all auditors. I was an auditor myself. <laughs> I duly noted. But, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I, I want to caveat that. We'll, we'll put a, uh, <laughs> this is the title of the episode. But the, um, the element is um, we can all see things differently, and it depends on, and you know, we'll use that context lens that I'd mentioned as well, is that if this technology can get us to what we would call a level playing field, that we all know what we're trying to achieve, but we can change the context of that achievement with business objective, with the way I've implemented a technology, and the conditional variables – but that it's still aligning to a consistent approach. Now we're starting to make progress. Now the the oscillations of that curve start to catch up and we can all start playing kind of the same music. So we may not be, you know, uh, out of sync, but we may all be uh, following the same curve. But anyway. No, that's, a, you know, Sean, that, that is so f foundational to the way we have operated the best practices side of CIS, frankly. And this is not a plug Absolutely. for anything we do here, but it's an observation you know, this idea of consistency is really important, I think. You know, especially uh, if you've heard me riff on the zero trust thing, right? We, we, we have moved over the decades from trust as a binary condition. You know, you, you have a security clearance or you don't, you're my trusted supplier or you're not. And as I think you pointed out in somewhere in, in that the middle episode, a lot of that was, was based on personal relationships, right? You get to know someone, you've dealt with them in the past, and so you can you can convey trust kind of that way. And this this idea of uh, trust is a binary condition. You're a trusted supplier to the government or you're not. Well, no, that doesn't apply anymore. It hasn't applied for years. Trust is a dynamically negotiated condition. You, you negotiate it for a purpose, right? You're are you, are you, uh, do you introduce more risk by being my supply chain or not? You know, and you, and it's only for that purpose. I don't trust you binary. I trust you for this purpose, this period of time to provide me this sort of input, et cetera. And so you have to have a basis for that negotiation of trust. You have to have some way to decide what do we care about? And so there's a notion of consistency here that, that really is important. And you'd rather have, again, as uh, humans are expensive, right? They're scarce, they're talented. So you want to kind of machine the machinable or get the sort of baseline of things, you know, m much more rapidly dealt with. So you can have the humans focus on the, what is it that's different about you and me as a potential supplier? So I think that this, this idea of, you know, how do we 
can we use the emerging technologies to help us kind of pull out the essence or the the baseline of negotiation or bring consistency so that it's not dependent upon the skill or background or interests of this particular auditor or this particular process. And, and having watched this for, for decades, again, coming primarily from government, you know, it has astounded me the variability that you get with people who are nominally working from the same framework, from the same definitions. And it's incredibly, um, you know, personalized the, the the response that you get, which is, you know, is fine, but it doesn't scale, it doesn't convey, and it doesn't give us a basis for negotiating trust, right? You know, you've got two wildly different views, and now you're trying to negotiate some common, uh, what is the common threat to this particular business activity that we're going to engage in? Now you're kind of left to sort that out, you know, from the bottom, which makes no sense at all. That's so. One of the things, you know, as as we start even before this episode, Tony, we were talking about when we see these elements come through, and because of the inconsistency, it aligns to something that I'd mentioned called the short-term memory. So the finding that you have is not fundamental to the progress that I'm making. You know, for let's say an audit finding, I've interpreted this respective control this way. You go do this. Now you meet my level of compliance. All right, I'm going to go do that to meet your level of compliance, but it's not going to affect the way I understand or perceive the implementation of a security control to meet your understanding interpretation, you know, external, internal auditor, whatever it happens to be. And so we will do that, forget about it, and I go right back to what is my my consistent approach of implementing the control in terms of then that's my long-term memory. But the short-term is just to, you know, basically get this finding completed. I can report that to a board and I'm good to go, right? I, I've, I've fixed this issue, but I've not necessarily impacted or permeated a new element or a new thought, idea, or, or progress in terms of the evolution of a security program. Yeah, it is. And I, I, again, I heard that certainly in government and then from industry friends over, over my time, which kind of led to my... By thinking about this, right? It would be, you know, oh, this week we have to entertain the auditors from this framework. And I can't say happy for them. I have to say glad. And we don't, we don't dare say red. We have to say blue. And then the next auditor, you know, next month, this other crew, and I've got a dedicated human being to following them around. And he says, but we're basically taking the same technical content, right? The controls I put in place, the, the data that I read, the decisions I make. And I'm just, you know, either putting red or blue lipstick on this pig or whatever, you know, and I thought, man, that's, that's crazy. And But it's, you know, one of the, the struggles, I mean, this is one of the themes that we've discussed at CIS for the last several years, which is this, uh, it's a fog of war thing, by the way, <laughs> the proliferation of security frameworks, right? Each each of them, well-intended, uh, you know, has some noble purpose, some noble backing for whatever person, you know, you handle credit cards, you handle medical data, you operate in this part of the world, whatever. Those are all legitimate. The problem is they were all de- designed independently. And so you've got this, you know, all good intended, but it's a classic, but at the system level, it doesn't add up. We're taking 80, 90% the same ideas, content that you talked about and reframing them, painting them over, changing happies to glads or whatever. And that, that causes tremendous churn and again, energy that ought to be best spent elsewhere, right? And again, it does not support this idea of negotiating trust dynamically over and over again, rapidly, 
at every process, every machine, every business transaction. You, you know, if you want to be in a zero trust environment, you have to have an infrastructure that makes uh, as frictionless as possible all this negotiating. So I think that's, you know, we try, we have tried to help CIS. Uh, have you ever heard the one ask per subcontrol uh, uh, riff from, you know, and the idea there was, could we, as the creators of one of these well-intended security lists or recommendations or frameworks or whatever, uh, get, uh, make some progress on this consistency problem? And the guidance I gave the team some years ago was one ask, that's A-S-K per subcontrol. And the idea was, let's get away from writing kind of narrative paragraphs about what our security re recommendation or requirement or expectation is and move to a model where we we ask for one thing in one conceptually kind of one line in the excel spreadsheet or one one item trackable item in the grc tool or whatever i said we're not we're doing more than creating recommendations we're starting workflow and by asking for one thing you remove some ambiguity about uh, what is expected. And with one thing, you can say, is there a test for the one thing? Can I assign a human being for that? Can that one thing be done by a piece of technology as part of its package of things? Anyway, the idea is you, you, you want to sort of aid the process by starting up front. And, um, and, we, and we believe strongly in that theme at CIS and we'll continue to push it. But it's going to take more than that. <laughs> and maybe that's where these more complex large language model technologies can help us, right? We sort of simplify their their learning if we create better kind of the, 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 the things they're learning from, whether it's our recommendations, whatever. But then we allow this, you know, to say, but it's still, there, there's not going to be one framework to rule them all. There's not going to be a single view. So we still have a complex multi-document, multi-framework, multi party problem to work here that is clearly you know something that you want to automate or bring kind of rapid progress to and that save our human being power to focus on you know what is really unique about your enterprise Sean and the context in which you're going to use it not the 90% that's going to be the same right the, the set of controls you're going to do for this framework or that framework are going to be in the I don't know 90% range identical, right? You're, you're going to have to manage your assets. You're going to have to manage permissions. You're going to have to do all, you know, all the kind of classic things. And that's going to be, you know, in common, but there are going to be reasons why you're going to do things differently. And you, you talk about, you know, contextualizing the uh, security framework, you know, your job, right, is to use your human being power to think about things like our business model, our partnerships, the, the thinking of our leadership, our reputational risk and all the other risks that go around that and then put that, but you don't want to spend the, that energy on the hundred percent. You want to spend it on the things that really matter. So again, that's, that's a bit of a, um, you know, a story there, but I think that again, both you and I have worked in these areas enough to say we're spending a lot of human being power on things that sort of could be best done right by some sort of large scale uh, technology that allow us to pull out the commonality. So uh, yeah, thanks for bringing up the uh, the uh, variability consistency thing because I think that is a really sure. big theme. No, absolutely. No, I think it also leads to um, Tony in this case is the reasonableness, uh, and you know, in some elements that I see is uh, with the controls, the ask, but other frameworks, it's more of the one tell 
kind of the prescriptive element of what I want to see is not necessarily allowing us to add the contextualized approach to system variables, to the business operations, the underlying goals and objectives. And where I'll tout the controls and where they're advantageous is that it allows you to be reasonable in terms of their interpretation for those that are not consistent, right? We've got the 80, 90% that are representatively consistent. I have an active directory. I manage that to a respective benchmark, utilizing build kits in order to standardize that approach. Fantastic. But when it comes into the management of respective accounts, so an internal employee, an intern, a contractor, um, you know, supplier, etc. There's elements of where there's variability, but the reasonableness through access control, identity, and access management allows me then um, to, you know, put my flavor on it, as it were, or put the essence of what it is versus being told. This is how you're supposed to manage, you know, these respective accounts. This is the the, the demarcation, as it were, of uh, your ability to necessarily influence a framework where I have to, because it's going to be a short-term memory piece. What it leads me to is compliance versus security. That's the difference. And if I can get to security, and I've, you know, I'm, another tagline is good security, the byproduct is compliance. But if I'm doing it right from the security essence, I've achieved the goal. Uh, you know, we can implement these controls. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And you know, I always struggled with that you know, from the earliest days of what became known as the controls. Because there was this hunger, but tell me what to do. <laughs> you know, please tell me what to do. And and so there is an element of that, right? Because of this fog of more thing, people are really overwhelmed by it. And I, it's not to blame them, right? This this is overwhelming. Um, and so we're, we're, we need to balance this sort of what are the most important things to do. That was the goal of the controls, you know, what we eventually call the controls. Help people get started, you know, that they didn't need to study for a year to know that they should do whatever. And that uh, any reasonable risk assessment, right, sorry, don't say reasonable, but overusing it, any rational risk assessment, you know, I would say that doesn't uh, ask me to focus on, for example, inventory of my, all my IT assets, it's not credible. It doesn't make sense. And so, so you need some help to, to, to bring that. But you also, you know, the, this exercise that you talked about, thinking about the uh, putting into context and and looking at it as a business imperative, and you're the you're the intersection point or the point that has to kind of negotiate right across the technology business boundary, uh, was an area that always I always struggled with, and how do I provide the best sort of technical understanding in a way that can be used as as, as rational input to business decision-making. And, and that, that was just something I could never figure out, to be honest. What the real breakthrough for me, and just, you know, this is my experience is when Chris Cronin showed up at our doorstep, my, my virtual doorstep one day with what became CIS Ram. And he was clearly focused on that problem, but much deeper in his understanding of, of it because of his practice, both as consultant and someone who worked court cases and so forth, the regulatory cases. And the idea was to shift the focus from what's the right security thing to do to what are, what are the right, what, what are reasonable business decisions and how would I demonstrate that? You know, it's not do, and because even the controls, I'll say even the controls, right? Are, you're not going to knock them out in 30 days or 60 days or 90 days. So you're always in the process somewhere. And there's no notion of done. You're running a machine, right? You're, 
you know, things are going to be changing in that if it takes you two years, let's just say, to implement so much context, so many assumptions are going to change. So there's no ending in sight. You're going to adapt. You're going to sense the changes in the environment and the, all these things that are going on, technology, and adapt to that. And so there's an ongoing need to, for you to adjust your security program, but also to explain it to others in a different way. Have you ever heard my Defender's Dilemma uh, riff, uh, does that one ring a bell? Uh, th- there's a talk I give. It's called the def- and the, the one slide is the defender's dilemma, right? There's three parts. Number one, you got to figure out what to do, which is overwhelms many enterprises because you got to understand threats, technology, business use of technology, all this kind of stuff. Number two, you have to yeah yeah you actually have to do it. If you could do the first, you still have to do it. You have to buy stuff, operationalize, train, equip, you know, manage, do all the operational stuff. I said, but the third one, and this is a talk I started giving many years ago. The third one is the one that actually bugs me the most. You have to prove to multiple parties over and over again that you've done the right thing, whatever that is from their perspective. And that's where you'd like to save energy and time and money, right? Because that's the least value in terms of the work that you do, Sean, right? The the responsibility that you have as a corporate officer here. And yet we tend to spend lots of energy on that. And you, you gave some great examples of it. So CISRAM was a way to sort of put it into a better business thinking context to say, it's not, did I do all the controls? Yay, I'm done. It's, have I rationally, reasonably prioritized, made decisions about them? It's not to start from scratch, right? You're starting from a kind of a, you know, a solid, well-defendable def- baseline of activities, but now you're deciding, you know what, CIS recommends this, but you know that, that would take me a fair amount of expense and, and time and management support. I'm going to move that down to the list. Or CIS recommends this. If I look at my context, if I did what I think they, they're asking me to do, I, I would lose my customer base instantly. <laughs> they wouldn't put up, you know, I, or maybe I, ha- I already have compensating controls in this language that would deal with the problem that I think they are trying to deal with here. And so... You know, so the question, the issue is not, did I do them all and am I proudly done? It's, have I made decisions and do I have a rationally prioritized program that I can now present to others? And a number of folks told me that what they saw as value in the control was, I'm not arguing the controls. I'm pointing to CIS as the independent source of wisdom here. And the only question is, where am I? Did I make decisions? So, so, so Chris Cronin, uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of his. That he really helped me think of this entirely differently, and he really brought you know he he brought uh, content to the table on that issue. The other that helped me, Sean, I'll just mention uh, since we are wandering a bit from the topic here, is the implementation groups, and really that came from uh, Kurt and Phyllis on at the on the CIS team, and I struggled with that. Again, what and we had we had different models in earlier versions of the controls because we and people would say things like, "Hey, the Australians only have eight things to do, and you have twenty things to do. What, what's the story here?" And it's a it's a great illustration. I had tremendous respect, by the way, for if you remember the Australian Essential Eight and things like that. Super nice people. I knew them from the government days. You know, all good. I said, but it illustrates the problem. Everybody names and numbers things differently. And so and smart people ask me, why, why do they only have eight and you have 20? I said, go read them and go read the, go read the 20. By the way, yes, uh, these are smart folks. They've thought about this. There's not eight things in there. They, they are putting it out in the context of other guidance the Australian government gives out. 
they don't even, you know, they assume things because it's part of Australian government policy that these things be done that we can't assume. And they name and number differently. And that's all, you know, if you could actually unravel all this, if you could kind of maybe through chat GPT, you know, train the model to all these other documents that are referenced, then you would be closer to 90% than you are to, you know, 60% or 50%, right between 8 and 20. So it's, it's part and parcel of the problem here. But this idea of what's the smallest number of things, and we still, so, so I never could solve that one, and just being uh, candid here with our audience. And, and uh, you know, Kurt is a, a long, long, long standing colleague and, and trusted friend. And he said, we need to fix this. And so he just, he and Phyllis sat down one day and, and they ran the idea on me. I said, well, okay. And, uh, you know, it turned, it eventually became the implementation groups. And you know what? It was the exact right answer. It really, again, the, the goal was not to move to, you know, a hundred percent prescriptive model. The idea was what's the smallest set of things? How do we help the underserved get going? But in the context of a larger security program, i.e. the controls. And so that, that's the beauty of that idea. And again, it takes us back to this. How do I present what I'm doing? How do I provide guidance that's really usable? And then you still have this, you know, this language model problem, right? the complexity of all the other things. I think I, with some industry friends a few years ago, I don't know if I shared this, but they, they did a large scale survey of enterprises asking them, you know, how many security frameworks do you have to deal with? And the answer was rarely zero. And the answer was rarely one. It was several. And that, as soon as I saw that, I go, yes, that, that matches my intuition. And this is lunacy, right? This is the number three of the defender's dilemma. I have to prove over and over again to multiple parties that I've done whatever the right thing is from their perspective. And therefore, if we look at that as a repeat activity, then we want to do it efficiently. Efficiently, We want to spend as little resources and time, because I know I'm going to have to do it again next quarter, next year, every three years, or whatever the model happens to be. And at the same time, I got to run a security program, right? That's, that's your job. And so the presentation part of it, you want to be done sort of quickly. As you said, you want the data that drives the response, the compliance, whatever the model is, to be a byproduct of the decision-making that you've already done. So how will I demonstrate that, right? And again, can I use technology to sort of pull together the complexity of what they're asking me to do? And, and we know this because I think as near as I can tell, we're one of the few security framework, you know, recommendation owners that has committed to cross mapping from everything we do to everything we can find. And as you know, that is laborious grunt work full of uncertainty, right? Because of this naming and numbering problem, because it's often... There's no one ISO document, right? You, you go to one that points to another, that points to another. So you're, you know, it's a, it's a one-to-many kind of problem to think that through. We still have to do it because that's kind of where we are as an industry, but that doesn't make it fun work and it doesn't make it consistent work, right? It's hard to do that in a way that, that is consistent, repeatable, and can keep up Right? There is no massive configuration control engine in the sky that's controlling the changes. It's everyone makes changes whenever they think it makes sense for them. And folks like us just have to react to it. So it's, I think that's, again, a great uh, area that we could see. Uh, so again, are we going to get everyone to have one the one framework to rule them all or to have one document? That, that, 
No, that's not realistic. But we do want to make that problem less of a problem for folks like you that have to deal with it and bring consistency, bring scale, bring the ability to keep up with you know constant changes in the, these documents and their expectations. And I think that's a that's a great use of these this kind of technology. Oh, definitely, definitely. I think it gets us to a level, and you know, we mentioned it again in um, in forty nine uh, around the twenty six minute mark, and uh, and then also through our assessment, which this you know, I think this is a follow on conversation to uh, what we were talking about from uh, but around uh, again. The reason I've got this time is because I've got to give you, uh, you know, I owe you money again because I did mention the fog of more in '49. So uh, again, and I mentioned it here, so I'm just doubling up. I got a running tab for you, Sean. No problem at all. <laughs> so around the 31 minute mark is is where we got into this, uh, and it's we're permeating some new thoughts here, obviously, in terms of um, where we're thinking about you know getting a consistent approach utilizing the technology i think there's also when i talked to uh, dr shakarian is this verification process right there are limits to what we our expectations and we should limit those now we should verify as we grab the information from a large language model that's looking respectfully controls and in some cases you know training such a model to look at our business processes as well will help it inform decisions of recommendations right where is reasonableness in terms of a control element as we abstract um you know certain elements here of threat uh and uh you know operations and that changes over time right our threats are literally changing day by day. And it's a, uh, a very interesting approach that we will allow the velocity of that change to be incorporated and contextualized way quicker than a team of people. Because in this case, and the way I'm thinking about it, Tony, I may be wrong. I may be wrong. But the way I'm thinking about it is the um, ingestion of the data and me to abstract that element of abstraction that I'd mentioned for me to understand the data that I'm seeing at machine time, obviously that's, you know, milliseconds for me, that's taking time to contextualize my own approach to the data and will take relatively hours, days in order for me to make a conclusion or provide a recommendation where you'll have machine time to be able to provide you that information Again, you've still got to do your verification, but that could be, you know, hours. And then our response time, a lot quicker. And in some cases, as we start to trust, and maybe, you know, we should have zero trust of AI and completely do a verification of all the information it's received, data lineage, and, and really understand how it's approached this. In some cases, it's a black box. You're not, you're not going to be able to see it. But it will allow us then to utilize the technology, I think, more consistently, and then also as a prevention strategy to help the defender dilemma in terms of your three levels, right? So now we want to understand, well, I'm abstracting that understanding to a large language model, right? So it's utilizing its understanding. I'm interpreting that through a verified approach, right? I've got to bring my own knowledge to the table. I can't just be someone to walk off the street and say, large language model, I'm now a CISO. You tell me how to be a CISO or what's supposed to be done. I'll go do it, point two. And then the proving element, I think, then is the... Uh, 
respectfully from Chris would be, uh, you know, our um, key risk indicators with the indication of both the benefit and burden of the implementation of a respective control done in the context of reasonableness. I think that's where we find uh, a lot of synergy here. No, I appreciate you because I had caught that part of when I listened to the your, your interview with um, Dr. Shakari and yeah, the, the sort of verification problem. And he was very sensible, I thought, you know, that uh, that is not over-promising, right? And to be being clear about sort of what you can expect in terms of these issues of confidence and transparency and and sort of what you couldn't. And, uh, but you, you know, you brought up a point that I hadn't considered, Sean, which is this sort of, it has to kind of, you're part of the, the data set, right? The way you conduct our business and and lead us to make those risk decisions as a company is input to this, and so the the, the it's not do I wait for magic yes or no you know magic eight ball to the twist and tells me the uh, you know the the LLM tells me you know safe yes or no it's in the context of of us as a company and the way we make these decisions and therefore it has to understand that right to put it into that context as opposed to us sort of interpreting a binary answer that pops out of a, you know, a ver- of, of a tool that we ran and says, you know, all the desktops are configured the right way or not, you know, and that, that, that we're, we're something much more nuanced there. So anyway, so that's, you know, and the, just, I think in that, those kinds of conversations, right? So the, the confidence that we generate and the, then the uh, increases in the attack surface, we did talk some also about that, which is, you know, that's what, um, that's something that we've seen, I think kind of emerge in the modern age, right? Sort of, we try, we tend to think of attacks as, as technical things, which which is true. There's lots of lots of that, but uh, there's a saying that I occasionally run through my head to remind me. I learned, learned in my earliest days, and I, it's a bit of a cartoon, but I always say this: content is king. And so, what we have seen in the last several years emerge, especially around the political uh, issues, is the confidence that people have in technology, in processes, in other humans can be undermined with technology as an amplifier, right? As a way to allow a small party to have a, create a virtual oversized footprint and an echo chamber and a message that can under undermine key social processes like elections. And so we need to think about that also, that this, um, you know, that, that having confidence is also about the, uh, you know, what is the result of all this technology? What are we trying to do with it, right? We're trying to, you know, hold elections, conduct businesses, do all these other things that uh, in and of themselves are, are things that require an understanding and also um, verification. But this, you know, what, what happens there is attackers attack the things that give us confidence, right? The things that have uh, achieved their effect, right? They are, they are business people running their own business model in the same sense that you are, just the flip side of it, right? If their business model is financial gain or social unrest, you know, they're going to look for technology to help them uh, achieve that, right? And they're going to look at how do I undermine what you believe? You know, I used to say when I was talking about this in the Defense Department strategy, having, again, I lived my life as a defender, lifelong defender inside the intelligence agency. I, I, I had a talk I did many years ago, which was something on the title is something like this, um, uh, a manipulating attacker uncertainty is a defensive tool we haven't learned to use yet. You know, that is the, the attacker, the, the, the one coming after you, uh, has a model also, 
they want to be right. They want to avoid the risk of getting caught, right? They don't want to spend money that they don't need to spend. They don't want to expose their assets, et cetera, et cetera. And so they have to con consider that. And those can be culturally dependent. Different nations have different sort of risk tolerance, right, for discovery. Some uh, are very conscious. Like I always said, the U.S. will do anything to avoid political embarrassment or loss of life, right? Spend any amount of money, do whatever. Other nations seem to don't care, right? They think of that very differently than we do. It's not a value judgment. That's just an observation that they, they think of those. If they, they get caught in some cyber mischief, they blame somebody else. And they go on, you know, and so so you have to consider that as part of your defensive strategy, right? That is raising uncertainty. And uh, you've seen attempts. There have been lots of R&D-ish things. If you hear things like moving target defense and you know, these sort of DARPA advanced science programs to make us less known, right? To make the reconnaissance of the attacker less valuable, et cetera. But, um, you know, we I think I, we have seen that play out here. And so this that's the, the flip side. And, and uh you know, that that uh, interview brought some of those up, right? This this changes the attack surface, uh, both the attack of the technology, but the attack and the outcome, right? The confidence that people have in the result is a legitimate attacker objective. And we've given them new opportunities to, to you know, to spray that kind of uh, objective around and to do it at essentially no cost or no additional cost. So, yeah. Anyway, so it's a, a mixed bag as always. <laughs> I, I think... Um, you know, in terms of the looking back at these episodes that we did, I think there were some, uh, particularly the the the, the one of uh, forty nine where you and I just went back and forth, and then then listening to you on the fifty six with Doctor Shakarian, I, I just think there was a lot of great discussion. I think we're all kind of in an early stage here, sort of making sense of this, we tried to pull together our ideas, and you know, as, as I mentioned earlier to the, our listeners, uh, we know we're experimenting like everybody else looking at our, both our applications for the work that we do, for the guidance that we give, for the operations that we support for the, uh, for the state and local governments, but also the implications for the attack surface. And you know, does the nature of our guidance change and the way it gets presented change? So, so I think there's, uh, my guess is we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be back to revisit this topic uh, <laughs> from different angles before too long, Sean. Absolutely. We'll reminisce on this reminiscence of the reminiscence. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> No, wonderful. Thank you to, again, Tony. A, an absolute pleasure. Oh, um, right you know, back we, at we've your show. We've new topics even, and mm -hmm. I think this is, uh, it, it's just, again, honor and a privilege uh, to do this and, and to, uh, uh, again, reminisce that there were some good episodes. Um, again, for our audience, I recommend, you know, we mentioned a few timestamps. Go in, take a look at those. Uh, those will be linked um, with this res respective podcast. Um, if you've got questions, concerns, uh, and even uh, episodes that you'd like to see, podcast at cisecurity.org. Uh, remember, subscribe to us in all the usual ways. With that, thank you, Tony. Thank you, Sean. Yeah, a pleasure right back at you. Uh, we both learned, as, as, as is clear, we're not claiming to be the nation's experts, but we are certainly... Uh, uh, grappling with and I think contributing to the conversation about these topics. Exactly right. And to the audience, thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the show today. The thoughts and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are solely theirs and do not necessarily reflect those of CIS. If you're interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website, cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.